0: The following is a conversation with Dave Erickson. Dave Erickson is a serial entrepreneur with over 30 years of diverse business and international experience. Presently, Dave is the CEO of Screaming Box, a leading digital development company. Tune in to hear more about his story. So Dave, having the chance to work at a variety of industries or with a variety of industries, what's been your favorite one to work with thus far?
1: Well, I've liked all the industries that I've worked in. Uh, it's more about you know, what I do in the workflow versus what industry. Uh, I've entered several new industries, uh, and I've enjoyed them, uh, mostly from the learning experience. Example, I, I did solar, uh, ran a solar company. We engineered a solar product. That was very interesting, a lot of learning there. Uh, I love doing software development. Uh, my basis is marketing, so I have a marketing company, and I've been doing that for 20 years as well. Uh, so it, for me, I've never really been that focused on industry, because once you kind of have a lot of experience in business and business different industries, you understand that the business mechanics are kind of the same in all the industries. and It's really about what are the business mechanics and how do you leverage them to succeed.
0: Got it. So you would say across a lot of the stuff that you've worked in, regardless of the industry, there's a lot of parallels. And even though you're working with different companies, you still see the same way to add value regarding just the kind of mechanics behind running businesses.
1: Yeah. In general, people are people. Right. And it doesn't matter what industry they're in. You know, the mechanics of the market, uh, how people buy, uh, buy things, sell things, market things, how that's done, the communication and all that those mechanics are kind of the same in every industry, right? And if you Mm -hmm. understand how they work, you know, the industry is more about the details, right? Versus the actual mechanics, right? And so Mm -hmm. when you go into a new industry, yes, you definitely have to focus on the details to learn all the different details and all the variations and possibilities of the products or services. But the actual mechanics of business are pretty much the same no matter what industry. Right. And if you have that understanding of business mechanics, you know, that takes care of 50% of the the problem. Right. Uh, So moving from industry to industry, I found as I've gained more experience, it becomes easier and easier where, you know,
0: Oh, sorry. Now Maya, I was gonna add in really quickly. Speaking of those mechanics, are there anything anything more specific that you'd add, like specifically to what kind of mechanics that you see uh, businesses in different industries have trouble with? Like if there's a common theme among these uh you know through diverse oh, industries. Communication.
1: Mm-hmm. Communication is the biggest barrier and biggest thing that people struggle in, right? Uh and the reason for that is uh people have different personalities, right? And so they communicate differently. And depending on who you are, uh, you may be listening to somebody and you don't hear what they're actually saying uh, because of a personality difference, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Or it could be that the way they're communicating isn't necessarily the best way for you, right? Uh, Part of this also has to do with, with literally the technology of communication. Uh, Nowadays, there's so many different types of communication and channels that people communicate on, depending on when you learn something and how old you are and where you are, Uh, you know, your standard form of communication may not be the standard form for other people, right? Um, I have that issue. Uh, I basically uh, grew up in business on email, and my main primary communication tool is email. Although I have a lot of people who love Slack and so they, I had to learn Slack, but it isn't something I naturally gravitate to. So sometimes I miss communication or I communicate and I don't do it on Slack. I forget to put the message in Slack. I do it by email. And so I've had to kind of relearn a lot of that stuff. And so that's a challenge that people have. I know I'm not the only one. I talk to people every day who are like, oh my God, my business has five different you know channels for communication. I don't know which one. I use these two. I miss messages. It it really is a big challenge in business nowadays. How do you communicate and how do you make it all work? Um, Fortunately, there's a bunch of AI tools that are coming out that are making it easier so that even if your primary source of communication is, say, Slack, uh, you can automate it so that messages go out by email. Uh, or on Facebook Messenger or LinkedIn Messenger or whatever platform people you can kind of over communicate a little bit with some AI and that makes sure things happen. Um, But obviously personal communication, right? Uh, Hmm. Meeting people in public versus meeting people online. Uh, You know, our company Screenbox, we've been remote for the last 10 years. We started remote, right? We didn't want to have offices. I've had offices, I've had all that stuff. Uh, I didn't like all the overhead. And this business with software development, most of the developers we like are senior level. They don't want to work in an office. They prefer working for, remotely. And so uh, we've just developed it. And it took a, a change to figure out what's the best way to communicate with everybody, what's easiest, what makes sure, you know, between clients, developers, ourselves, Uh, It just took some learning experience. And after a couple of years, we kind of got it down and and understood it. And then it's been smoothly. And when the pandemic hit, it didn't affect us at all because we were already 100% remote. So that was actually something really beneficial for us. Uh, But for many companies and many business people, communication will always be the primary challenge for them.
0: I think that's a really good note there. I think underratedly, uh, as you might attest to, a lot of technology companies have actually been remote for quite some time, even prior to COVID. So uh, I know there are other aspects of COVID that I'm sure they had to deal with, but uh, I think a lot of people started to realize that uh, working from home wasn't just the new norm, that a lot of people were actually doing that before. So really interesting note on that. Uh, Do you think that the future of work communication is more kind of towards emails, which seems to be part of the more conservative culture or part of that instant messaging with with apps like Microsoft Teams and Slack?
1: I think nature and business are both the same, and that Mm -hmm. is nothing ever stays the same. So it is always moving, right? Mm -hmm. And it may seem like it stays the same for five years or 10 years, but when you look at overall, it's always going to be shifting. And there's always going to be new forms of business and communication mechanisms. So don't get too comfortable in any one. Uh, And, you know, you just have to assume, I mean, remote work has a real benefit and it really has a place. But like I said, I've, I've had offices and I've had people and that has its benefit as well. And for different types of work, different types of businesses, you know remote may not be the solution and remote may actually be damaging uh i can tell you that in a plumbing business remote doesn't mean anything because the work is not done remotely uh you can maybe have five percent of the work done remotely mm-hmm. uh, but most of it's done physically but even human communications i i see it. it's always going to be a pendulum swinging back and forth right um mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have a lot of people who are doing a lot of remote communication, but then people are going to want to see and talk to people. I I myself personally like that. I like having personal communication, meeting people, and I do a lot of networking remotely though, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that it's a mix of things and you have to figure out for your business and what you're doing, what has, what achieves the best results. And it may move around, right? I mean, one year it may be, hey, trade shows are the rage and everything's doing great. And then the next year you go to a bunch of trade shows and it's not working very well and you're not getting a lot of feedback and the remote stuff is doing better, right? So it's always gonna be kind of moving. and, And as a business person and an entrepreneur, you just have to be really aware of what's working, what isn't working. If you're in this mode that whatever is working is just gonna keep on working, uh mother nature is going to come around and surprise you and all of a sudden it ain't going to work right yeah. um I, I mean a good example is i have a lot of friends who technically they're my competitors <laughs> but they're businesses who do web development and agency work just like us but you know we use their developers they use our developers we use their resources sometimes i get clients they don't fit us i give them over to a, a friend of mine has a different type of agency and it fits them better and so I, I've worked with a lot of them and a bunch of them, they, they do a lot of remote marketing and inbound marketing and doing a lot of landing pages and buying ads and all that. And they they keep telling me this year, a lot of it changed, right? And so the stuff that worked well for three or four years in a row, all of a sudden aren't working. So they're having to figure out what works, right? Whereas mm-hmm. for me, I do a lot of personal communication and relationship and it doesn't necessarily provide the greatest growth leverage. Um, it's steady business. So for me, I'm not really struggling with the fact that when I used to get, you know, 10 inbound leads a week, and now I only get one inbound lead a week, it doesn't affect me that much because my style of business is different. But it does affect them. And I tell them that, yeah, it, it does change. And maybe in four years from now, everybody will get back on to, oh, I want to find uh Uh, web development, I'm going to go Google that, but right now they're finding it by personal relationship, right? So
0: Uh,
1: it all changes all all the time.
0: I think that's fair. Do you think for a business where, say, remote work is a capability where you have something like a SaaS business model or just, you know, everything, all your work is fully online, do you think that there's, you know, managers often see a productivity risk or like a hindrance to productivity in working remote as opposed to being in the office?
1: If they do, they're not really focused on the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's really about what fits the business best, right? There are types of work and positions that right now are more effective and more efficient remote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it has to also be the business, like we made a conscious decision when we started Screenbox. We were not going to be physical, right? We knew that that had advantages, but it also has disadvantages. Every business choice is the same. You have the advantages and the disadvantages. We decided that for us, we were going to shape our business so that the disadvantages of remote don't affect us as much. And that Mm -hmm. was a conscious choice. Although we also knew that, by doing that, we weren't going to be able to access certain types of business, right? And again, that was a choice. We said we would rather have the low overhead and have than have that uh, growth direction, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, creative work. Uh, a lot of that, yes, you can do it remote. But the best creative work is when you're in a room with a bunch of creatives and you're brainstorming and you know you're you're going through stuff and you do that okay, that's not our strength. There's plenty of agencies out there who have an office and a great creative team and that's what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the type of work that we do, remote is really good if we want to get those senior level developers, right? Because they've all had the nine to five job and they've all worked in an office and now they would rather just not. They have a kid and they want to have the flexibility to you know, take them to the playground and then do work at night, right? Or however they mm-hmm. wish to do it. So it really depends on what you're targeting.
0: Got it. So the highest talent now you think has significant bargaining power since, you know, there's a lot of competition for the senior software development talent. Um, You know, they can kind of demand those kind of perks as opposed to the other way around.
1: Um, uh, yes and no. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of clients who are like, okay, I want a developer nine to five full time. Right. Um. And that's a certain style of developer. And whether they're remote or whether they come into an office, that in itself is its own kind of category. Mm-hmm. Then there are people who want flexible developers. Hey, I need a developer to come in and fix this whenever I need it on call. That's a different style of developer, and they have completely different needs, right? Uh, some development, st- uh, developer tech stacks and other things are in great need. And two years ago, nobody wanted them. Or two years ago, everybody was onto something else that you couldn't find a, a React developer if your life depended on it. And now there's plenty of React developers and they are all looking for projects, right? It's mm-hmm. always moving around, right? So the leveraging is really about who's available, what level you're looking for, what flexibility you have. For us as a business, we kind of target developers who are looking for a certain flexibility. Mm -hmm. And we're also looking for clients who want a lot of flexibility, right? On the other hand, we do team extension. And I have some enterprise clients and they're like, we love the way you source developers. Uh, We do a lot of personality testing and uh, technical testing and other things. And they love the developers that we've given them. And those developers are, you know, full-time developers on a steady gig for a year to three years, right? And that's a very different type of developer than what I would call our project developers who like a lot more flexibility and always want a challenge. And so it really depends on on the type of developer. And some are easier to find than others at different times, right?
0: Got it. So it just has to be a good fit between what the developer is looking for and really what the company has to offer.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you if your approach of of finding a developer, and not just a developer, any anyone, QA, uh, an artist, creative, uh, marketing guy, you know, accounting person, if your focus is finding a person who wants to do what you would like them to do, and likes the way that you're going to offer them something, whether It's flexibility, whether it's security, whether it's stability, whether it's creativity. They all kind of have, this is what is really important to me. And and in finding people, you need to really understand from them what's important for them. And if you really want them, you have to have the flexibility to be able to provide that, right? Mm -hmm. That goes away as you get become a bigger and bigger company, right? Uh, and this is what enterprise companies struggle with a lot is that the company culture becomes so structured and rigid because they're so big that they don't have a lot of flexibility. They they offer an employment package. This is what we offer. If you like it, don't, you know, take it. If you don't like it, goodbye, right? Whereas if you're a smaller business, you have the flexibility to say, well, is this really a person I want in my organization? If he is a person, if his Personality fits the way you like to do business. If the way he communicates is a way that you know fits you and your other you know employees or people or staff or whatever, then okay, what do I need to give him to make sure he's working with us and is happy? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can ha- hire a person and just throw a lot of money at him and get him, but if you don't give him the thing that makes them happy, they're going to move on pretty quick, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and they won't be happy, even though they're getting the money they want. They're not going to produce the quality that you want or be enthusiastic about the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you really focus on the other person getting to know them, figuring out what they really want, uh, and providing that those things for them, even though they're usually not related to money, uh, that's really kind of the key to getting good people. And even in a tight market, it, you know, they all talk to each other. so. In software development, if you know the developers is saying, "Hey, Screenbox—they're very flexible. They're really helping us. They—they they do a lot for me besides the money. They have great clients. They're—they're they're easy to communicate with." That spreads, and so it's easier to get developers who know mm-hmm. that, right?
0: Got it. Fair. So it's really kind of similar to what you said earlier about just having a good fit, but knowing that that changes over time, and especially becomes harder as a company grows larger because. Uh, it's hard to keep that really intimate culture, so it's definitely an interesting dynamic to uh to watch over time. Uh, the other thing, going back to something you were saying earlier regarding communication being a big issue, uh, not not to ask this in like a trick question way, but do you think that there's often over communication or under communication between uh, or not between or within a company?
1: Oh, absolutely. It, it's a daily struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's just the way people are. Oh you know if you care about the other people right mm-hmm. so if you're if you don't care about the other people, it's not a struggle at all. You just communicate the way you want mm-hmm. to communicate, but then you deal with all the other problems of people not being there very long and not being happy and all that right but if yeah. you're you care about everyone being happy and, and comfortable, right your clients your your workers, mm-hmm. your staff, whatever, then communication is a daily i wouldn't call it struggle it is a daily occurrence right uh Mm -hmm. and people are people so oh i i gave this guy too much over communication he's kind of pissed at me because i'm always bothering him and i'm sending him all this communication all right i'm going to go the other extreme i'm going to send him less see if that makes him happy right so then you swing to the other thing you're not and then you find out later he's not happy because you're not communicating enough with him so it's it's really hard to find that balance it takes a little bit of time after a while uh you'll eventually find it if 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 you're communicating so if the other person is feeding back to you hey i i like you know you sent me just way too much don't send me this stuff anymore just Mm -hmm. send me this and if you can get that down okay great am i sending you enough yes okay great then you've found that balance with that person right and again large companies they, they have a hard time with this because they just have one form of communication for everybody, right? But uh, again, everyone's different. For us, it's a little bit easier. Uh, we have a what I would call a smaller company. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have lots of developers, but internal staff is very small. Uh, we prefer to keep it that way. and We've all known each other for years. So the communication is, is very balanced and easy, but it, it doesn't always mean it's that way. Got it. And clients are the same. Some clients, they love to communicate. And other clients, they don't. I have a client where I have to literally bother him for a month until I finally get a phone call with him, right? Uh, and other clients are like calling me every day. What's this? What's this? What's this? So it, it really is very different. That's why communication is always a challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's different for every single person. Right.
0: Got it. So the thing is, I think maybe the, does this sound like an accurate way to summarize that? It's not about, there's often issues over communicating or under communicating. It's really both and finding that balance, depending on the person that you're trying to speak with or communicate with. Yes. Okay.
1: Like, like, like in life, uh, in business, it's all about balance, right? Got it. Fair. And, 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 and nothing stays the same. Mm-hmm. So when you do find balance, it's temporary uh, and it will change. Right. Mm-hmm. You just have to be very aware of what's going on. And if there's anything in business that is quote, exhausting, it's the fact that you have to be very aware all the time. Right. Uh, particularly communication, uh, because business is communication. Right. Yeah. Um, totally. Yeah. And yes, with SaaS, you can eliminate a bunch of communication because it's not personal. It's mechanical. You're, you know, checking boxes and putting in numbers on a screen and transactions are happening. But the minute there's a problem, customer service steps in and customer service is just communication. Right. It's receiving information and then giving information and trying to fix something. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can't escape the need for communication in a business.
0: Yeah, I think it's also one of the things that you mentioned earlier regarding balance. I think, uh, not to sound oxymoronic or counterintuitive, uh, a lot of times finding that balance means accepting that there is no balance and being at peace with that in some weird way that that makes you calm and realizing, you know, this is all gonna be screwed up. I can just do my best and (laughs) try to stay on top of it. So, definitely can resonate with that.
1: Well, again, that comes back to people. And that's why, you know, when you choose to work with somebody, uh, and it, it, you try to figure out, are they someone who it's easy to communicate with or their style or their personality is one that, that that fits well with you and the team, right? And again, that's one of the reasons we use personality testing and assessment is to figure out because, I mean, if, we, if our team is very detailed oriented and we bring in a person who's very creative, uh, but very, you know, disorganized and not very structured, there's going to be lots of conflict,
0: right? Clash.
1: Right. And although sometimes you need that creativity, it takes effort to find a creative person whose personality is such that he's more organized than average, right? So he's both creative and organized and that's someone you want to work with, right? Not mm-hmm. just, oh, he's super creative. Okay, well, that's nice. But it doesn't matter if six months from now you're, you're fighting with him all the time because personality-wise, he's always expecting uh, you to give him work and information in a certain style. And you, you know that's not your natural style. And you can try to adjust it, but then you're going against what's natural for you, right? So it, it really makes a difference understanding the person, how they like to work, how they like to communicate how do they like to receive work? How do they like to give work? Uh, Those are all really important things that I think a lot of people overlook because they're looking at, you know, what's his tech stack and what's his skill level and did he do this and did he do that and does he have experience? Those are all important things, but usually the most important things are things like, well, how does he talk to you and how does he like to receive information and how does he like to deliver the stuff and, you know, does he like to work late at night or does he like to work in the morning or, you know, where is, you know, all that type of stuff can mean something, right?
0: Yep, totally. I mean, hiring is definitely tough and something we all need to kind of figure out, but I definitely think it's some great commentary on there. Uh, personally, in your life, I know you've been a serial entrepreneur for quite some time now, so... Was there a point, was there ever a point in your life where you kind of made that entrepreneurial jump or you always knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur as opposed to just an operator within a company?
1: Um, well, I mean, both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs and and owned businesses. My dad has always been an entrepreneur, right? So it kind of runs in the family. (laughs) Um, and for me, it wasn't so much, I'm going to grow up and, and own my own business it was kind of this assumption that yes, I would own my own business. But when I started out, I started out working in a company and grew the company and the company got pretty large. And, and at that point I then went and started a business. But mm-hmm. uh, I think it's always good to, to gain experience. Uh, yes, and I've met people where right out of college, the first thing they did was start a business, right? And great, uh, on the other hand, I, I, I didn't, I was happy to be in, in a larger company and a company that grew, uh, and that gave me a a certain level of experience. So when I did start my first business, I kind of had something to work with and it was, you know, it, it helped, right. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had like 12 businesses in my life. Uh, some have lasted three months and some have lasted, I don't know, 18 years, right. So it really depends. Uh uh the the businesses I most have most feelings for are the ones that failed, right? Sure. Not because they failed, but it is only in their failure that I actually learned something valuable, right? Mm-hmm. And I was able to take those lessons and say, okay, for the next business, let's not do that. You know, I learned from it and that allows you to grow, right? So if I had three businesses in a row that all succeeded, uh, you know, it might be that I'm just doing the same thing over and over again, whereas I I get bored of that pretty quick. So Mm -hmm. for me, I like moving different industries and different types of businesses. And the only way you can do that is by having failure. So you learn what it works. And, And now a lot of those business mechanics I really know because I've experimented and I've seen the ones that don't work and what does work. And that's important as well. Right.
0: For sure. I think a lot of times people are a lot of founders and, you know, this is my, my kind of first venture with this podcast. So I'm hoping it's successful the first go around, but we'll see, <laughs> we'll see what happens in the long run. But uh, I think that a lot of founders and definitely easier said than done. Um, if their first few ventures don't work out, uh, it can be a really emotional experience for sure. Cause you know, you take, sacrifice a lot of time you know, you probably weren't there for a bunch of events that you wanted to be at. And, you know, time is the the one commodity we really can't get back. Uh, so it can really be a, an emotional experience. But if you can try to look at it as objectively as possible, there's always, you know, maybe not always, there might be a few situations where just like, you know, people aren't lucky. But I think that there's almost always a big lesson to be learned and failure. And if you can learn from that and keep going and kind of iterate and go upon your next business or the one or, you know. Heaven forbid or God forbid, if you fail uh, at that one. If you can kind of keep going, keep iterating, and take all your failures and get one step to, to closer to success every time, then sooner or later uh, something is going to hit because you know you you're going to learn a lot and you're going to get get somewhere along the way. So I think it's it's definitely a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs to to kind of undergo failure and learn from it. I think uh, I can't think of any names off the top of my head, but I remember the one GoPro guy. I think he was a as a guest shark on Shark Tank. I think he failed his first three or four businesses before, you know, he hit at large with GoPro, but most people probably only know him from GoPro. Isn't like, Oh, this big, huge, awesome camera company. So, you know, a lot of people fail, but they're not, their failures aren't highlighted. They're their only successes. So definitely a, an interesting journey and an interesting note on that. Um, something that you said earlier uh, that I thought was really interesting and really resonate with um, when you said that entrepreneurship runs in the family, I thought that was a beautiful line. And uh, the other thing, uh, you mentioned starting 12 businesses. Uh do you ever think about, you know, hanging up the boots for a while, taking a break or you're always kind of have that entrepreneurial itch to to keep going? Uh,
1: you know, I've I I don't have any desire to work in a large company, right? Mm-hmm. Uh I don't have a problem working with a large company, but if I did, it would be literally I'm kind of a, a separate piece, right? Mm-hmm. Um I've done the the company thing. And it's great. But, you know, now I, I, you know, you've owned a bunch of businesses. uh, You have that experience uh, going and having some managerial job as a small department or something. I mean, why? That's, that's very redundant, right? Mm -hmm. I've run a company. I've run several companies, right? Uh, And, and also I'm very, for me, the important things in life are learning and creativity, right? And when you have a business, you're always learning. You're always having to be creative for problem solving. Uh, and, you know, the last couple of years I worked in a company, I remember literally falling asleep at my desk. Right? <laughs> and that's just not who I am, right? Um and my my job is that of relationship i I love uh building and having relationships with people and for me that that's what I like doing right so um I will always have that and as a result of having that, I always have opportunities right mm-hmm. uh, My issue is not having opportunities. My issue is which opportunities do I have time for, which opportunities do I want to invest in, which opportunities do I want to to make, succeed, et cetera, right? So for me, I have a business. It generates money. uh, It pays bills. uh, And then I have two or three other businesses that are business in the sense that I'm talking to people. We have ideas. We'd like to make a business this way. What do we need to do to get there? And moving those, those quote, opportunities along till they become a business, Mm -hmm. right? And I've had times in my life where I've had three or four businesses running at the same time. Uh, I've had times in my life where I was like, okay, I just got to focus on one and have for a couple of years just one. Uh, and it, and again, things change all the time, right? So sometimes the needs of the business change. And so it gets easier, it gets less, it gets harder, it gets easier. It's always moving, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of take things like that. And, and I'm uh, kind of of the age where you know I'm looking more for what feels good, uh, what provides me interesting opportunity right Mm -hmm. uh so i'm doing a lot with ai we have a great ai team and i love exploring where ai can go uh i am a, a a die-hard science fiction fan from a very young age so i've read all the ai you know science fiction horror stories and and all that so i definitely know the danger of what ai could become maybe Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm also using it and I'm changing my business. So one of my businesses, my marketing company, uh, we're using a lot of AI. And what I'm able to do now is is focus on startups, which I couldn't really focus on before because we cost too much. Mm -hmm. But AI has now allowed us to provide really good services at a really low cost. Uh, and it helps startups. So I'm like, great, I can give them a price they can actually afford and actually help them move their business forward. That's a great way. Okay, I'm not going to make millions of dollars from it, but I'm helping them. I learn something. I make a little bit of money from it. Okay, I, I'm willing to do that. I don't have to spend a lot of my time to do it. Great. That's that's a, that's a good way to do it, right? Got it.
0: I'm happy that you brought up AI. We'll definitely uh, get into that a little bit later. Um, but you know, the, the other aspect kind of wants to touch upon, uh, I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, you know, thankfully there are some that are kind of, I don't say born, or it seems to be in their blood as you kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, but generally, do you think that people who are more entrepreneurial or a little more creative have just less tolerance for kind of boring corporate BS?
1: I mean, that's a generalization. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that, yeah, entrepreneurs tend to be people who get bored doing kind of either repetitive work or having a repetitive situation. Right. And entrepreneurs are obviously risk takers, right. Even though I'm very conservative and risk adverse, the fact of the matter is I'm an entrepreneur. So I take risks, right. Uh, Some entrepreneurs are very risk, taking. They love taking big risks. They love the excitement of taking big risks. They've had big failures, but they've also had big successes. Other entrepreneurs are very risk adverse, but they like taking risks if they study and analyze everything. And it's a calculated risk. And then they're very comfortable taking that risk. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of a little bit more in the middle, maybe a little bit on the, you know, calculating side of risk um but you know i i do take risks and i'm happy to do that right uh Mm -hmm. and sometimes i try to analyze it so i feel more comfortable and other times it's just complete gut instinct right Mm -hmm. um but you know you have to kind of find that balance within you right like i said some people are really happy just throwing it all out to the wind and seeing what happens right
0: Yep. So I think uh, maybe less tolerance for kind of the mundane and more risk tolerance, I think, would be a good uh, good way to attribute it if we're looking at like some uh, some video game characteristics over there. So maybe we'll have to chop that avatar one day. But um, really uh, cool stuff about that. I, I uh, mean, I've
1: known some entrepreneurs who spent 20 years in a Fortune 500 company. And for them in their life, that stability and that security was so important. And they use that to have kids and raise a family. And then they got older in life and were like, you know, I my kids are in school. I'm very secure. Everything's taken care of. I've always wanted to start a business. Screw it. I'm just going to do it. Right. And they take a big jump that's completely different than what they did in the corporate world. They throw everything to the wind. They take a big risk and maybe they succeed, maybe they fail, but they're if they fail they're comfortable with it in the sense that they already took care of what they wanted to earlier and they mm-hmm. were able to afford the risk right mm-hmm. even though for the past 20 years they've had no risk then they jumped in the water and all of a sudden had risk and sometimes they do well and sometimes they don't right mm-hmm.
0: so to to each their to uh, each their own risk i guess is how i would uh, would frame it in my head yeah it, it it
1: depends on your life situation and where you are uh, like I said, I've seen entrepreneurs who literally got out of college and said, I'm starting a business. Mm. They had nothing. Uh, they definitely weren't doing it because they had security. <laughs> um, and again, they failed, they succeeded. They failed, 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 then succeeded. I mean, all that. It, it depends. And, and again, for me, I actually worked a, almost a decade in the corporate world, right? I learned a lot. And, you know, one of the things that that makes a business valid is you're doing something and you realize there's either a better way or the tools that currently exist don't address this issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make a business that fixes this or does this. Those are usually the businesses that succeed because you're, you're solving a problem, you're filling a need that you know other people are encountering the same because you have that experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of the key. Uh, you need to have that experience of, oh, something's missing.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And, you know, in in B2B type of businesses, that means you need to have some business experience where you were working for somebody and realize, oh, this is a pain in the ass. If only there was a tool that did this. Right. Oh. And, and I talk to a lot of SaaS companies and I always ask them, how did you come up with this idea? Right. And the ones that say, well, I saw a whole bunch of other SaaS companies doing this. I know there's room in the market. I'm just going to do the same thing. I kind of write those guys off pretty quick, right? Mm -hmm. But if the answer is, well, I was working at this company and I couldn't find anything that did this. And I kept having this problem. And I talked to my friends and they were all having the same problem. So I wrote this program that would solve this problem. Okay, that's a winner. Right. Mm -hmm. Or they have the the basis of being a winner because they're solving a problem that they experienced, that they know a lot of people experienced, and so they're trying to fix something that needed fixing. And Mm -hmm. those are the businesses that have the the best, you know, probability of succeeding or potential of succeeding. Right.
0: Got it. Fair. So the ones that are original that do something out of necessity, not just copycatting someone to make a buck.
1: Got it. And I'm that not saying, I mean, there's plenty of businesses out there that started with, I'm just going to make a buck and I'm just going to copy you. And they succeeded and made a lot of money. I'm not, not saying that doesn't work. It's just the probability of that working is work lower. lower than a business that's solving a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Example, Canva. Canva solved the problem, right? They had Photoshop. They had the tools that all of it did, PowerPoint, all that type of stuff. But mm-hmm. nobody put it in a format that made it accessible for others easily, Mm -hmm. right? So they were entering a market that technically they had a bunch of competition to, but they actually had a unique offering, Mm -hmm. right? Which was, and it was a problem because I myself before Canva came out, had the same problem. It's like, oh my God, I gotta use all these different tools. They're all over the place. And I wish it was just in one spot. And I wish my whole team could use it because it's in the cloud. and, And then all of a sudden it's there. Oh, great, I'm gonna use that, right? Yep. And so the business succeeded because it had a real need. There was a real need for it. Even though it was doing something similar to other businesses, it was similar. It wasn't the same. Right. And they yep. were adding a real value proposition to the business model. Right. Yep.
0: I could definitely really resonate with that. I think um, a lot of times when people think of Photoshop, they think of like these really old looking tools where there's like a zillion options on the side. And it just the thought of it, you know, kind of uh, makes your head hurt. But. Um, personally, I'm not the, I don't use Canva, nothing against it. Just, there's another, another platform I use, which probably sounds familiar too. It's called CapCut. That sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. CapCut just from, from personal preference, cause I use it for like, uh, editing videos and also just editing, uh, kind of thumbnails as well. Um, but same kind of idea. Uh, I definitely agree in the sense that, you know, before I started using that, and there's definitely a bit of a learning stage to kind of get familiar with all the tools, but the mental lift is much, much lighter than like having to learn or be perfect at something like Adobe Photoshop or these other really, I don't want to, I know sophisticated is usually a good connotation, but these really like sophisticated tools. And I say that in the sense that they have like a bunch of these features, which are great, but no one wants to look at a thousand different buttons. Everyone just kind of wants to have a simple, a simple interface and kind of simple use. So stuff like Canvas, stuff like CapCut that, well, there's a bit of a learning curve there, the learning curve is much less than it is for kind of those other tools. So I can definitely resonate with that and think that a lot of times people, uh, when they're starting businesses. Well, it's
1: yeah. only going to get easier, right? Because uh, AI is, gonna, is integrating into all these tools, right? Definitely. So at some point, it's just really going to be, you just kind of state what you need and it'll just do all the work. Right? And that's yeah. where it's going. Right. These apps, um, what's
0: interesting about it, Cam, uh, I'm not sure about Canva, but CapCut actually has, I'm speaking, I'm speaking about them as if like I'm sponsored by them. I'm not, it just happens to be the one, yeah. <laughs> one app that I use, but uh, they have like an AI capability actually, which is really interesting. So uh, it's in the kind of beta stages, but uh, will be really interesting to see where that goes. But it's really cool on that note, how you could see, say, for example, when you're looking at a YouTube thumbnail, uh, you know, you see like this really cool, sophisticated thumbnail and maybe... It took that creator, you know, an hour, two hours to make that. But now, realistically, with a lot of these tools, it could take you 10, 15 minutes. Or with AI, it could take you five. So really incredible um, streamline there. For me,
1: I see AI as a productivity tool, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It just allows you to be more productive. For me, like in the marketing company that I have, like I said, it allows us to do things at a much lower cost. You make less money because the, the physical volume of money is less. On the other hand, uh, you're helping people and you're fitting into a niche you couldn't service before, right? Mm -hmm. So it it, and they all and like I said, they all have advantages and disadvantages. I've played around with AI a lot, and I can tell you there's a there's kind of a sweet spot for it where if you ask it to do certain things, you end up spending too much of your time editing, correcting, going through it, changing it. Uh, And if it's too little, then yes, it's not even worth your time. Right. So there's sweet spots for all of it. And you just got to play with it and learn with it and, and, and figure it out. Um, and, there, and there's new AI tools coming out every day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all kind of, you know, like I said, it's all going in one direction. And the direction is going to be that the work that people are doing that is more monotonous and digital. It, you're going to have a lot of tools that make it easier and easier and easier. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's kind of a minimum and people have to realize ai is not conscious and it's not creative right all it can do is reorganize stuff that somebody else did mm-hmm. right and it can only generate from stuff that's been done right so there's still a market for originality mm-hmm. and if people focus on originality and use AI as a way of expressing that originality in a productive way, then they're probably going to get benefit out of it.
0: Definitely. I think uh, over time and as kind of AI tools develop, people will definitely be better at finding that balance. But I do think it's a great tool for productivity and will really allow people as a creative flair to shine in the future. So it will be interesting to see where kind of uh, the trend of AI goes in the future and the implications and integrations go. Uh, another thing to kind of jump around into to your background uh, on a similar topic to what we were talking about before, uh, you know, as we've mentioned, uh, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've done kind of a bit over twelve different businesses, and I uh, seem to have your handful in a few things. But you've also been fortunate enough to do some business kind of internationally in Europe and in Asia. So, is there anything that you'd like to add regarding the business dynamic uh, between doing business domestically as opposed to internationally, and specifically within those two areas?
1: I think that difference is becoming less and less Mm. because people are now familiar with the way people do business. When I was doing business in Asia, you know, 18, 19 years ago, uh, a lot of it was new for people. Right. Mm. And how you communicate and the cultural expectations were very different, even in Europe. I mean, I owned a company uh, in Europe for eight years and lived there. Uh, in the nineties, um, and it was all new territory. Um, and even the marketing was new because it was coming in from a different perspective, but nowadays running a business there is almost like running a business in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's becoming less of a difference. The, the biggest difference is always going to be cultural expectations and communication. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you do business in another part of the world, uh, you have to kind of do a little bit of research uh, and understanding of what are the cultural norms, what are the expectations, even from business. You know, what are the the expectations? How do you treat people in business? There's little nuances that make a a big uh, difference. And you just need to be aware that those exist. If you're going to do business in, you know, Asia for the first time, uh, you definitely want to study on what are some of the cultural expectations mm-hmm. and the way people deal with each other in that area of the world. Even if you're speaking English, there's cultural things that you you just don't do or you do that you wouldn't normally do. So you just need to understand that.
0: Yep. I, I have a feeling uh, in my head I thought of, not a joke, but in a serious way, if I ever did that kind of research for, say, if I was working with guests internationally or had some business internationally... I'd imagine one of the things that I would do is visit some country in Europe or visit some country in Asia and just set it like some cafe or set it some kind of a local restaurant and just kind of observe how people interact and talk and then really uh, take notes and then adapt that to, to my business practices.
1: Well, that, there, there's a small part of that that's mm-hmm. there. Um, more on the social side. Um but what you really need to do is just go find a potential business person that mm-hmm. you would do business with and, you know, go to their office mm-hmm. and just have a, an honest conversation with them. I'm not familiar with your culture. I'm not familiar with the way you do business. How do you do it? What's the best way to talk? Find someone who has that experience and talk with them before you go. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you know you're going to go to Taiwan. Uh, find a Taiwanese business person in the United States and ask him what are some of the tips that you have for dealing with Taiwanese people, right? In business. I right. like
0: how you said that, to have uh, an open and honest conversation. I think that uh, it's, you know, a lot of people try to overthink these days, but realistically people, regardless of their differences, just want to be transparent. And I think if, if someone's able to communicate that, that kind of breaks down barriers and allows for a much more uh, fluid business process. So definitely great advice on that. Um, back to kind of your background, uh, one of the things that you uh, initially worked on was the Fatality Gaming brand, which personally I think is really cool. I'm not a not a huge gamer, but back in the day I played a lot of 2K uh, and loved those video sports games. So can you speak a little bit about your time working at Fatality Gaming and kind of the big takeaways that you learned in that role?
1: Well, for me, that was really uh, an exciting one because we were building a brand. So I got to use a lot of brand marketing and I had a brand marketing experience from when I had a company, a publishing company in Europe. Uh, and that company was oriented around physical sports. So I was also familiar with the concept of sports. Uh, so eSports fit into what I already had kind of experience with. There's not that much difference between a physical sport and eSports. Um, and so I got to use a lot of brand marketing and event marketing. I actually did event marketing in Europe, uh, large cycling events. Uh, so going to esports events and doing esports uh, event marketing and, and show creation all fit into that. Um, but what I really liked about it was it was it was about licensing. Uh, so not only did we build the brand, but I had to go out and, and find licensees, negotiate the agreements, and sign them. Um, and we we basically built almost 99 SKUs of products over 18 years and Mm -hmm. probably sold about 300 million dollars in product um and a wide variety and i my background is is electronics manufacturing so i was very familiar with it and i could work with the licensees on developing product and work with fatality to make sure the product fit with what he needed and what gamers needed uh so it was a great experience i i loved doing it um and uh Still have samples of all those products, uh, so uh, but and and gaming was very good. It, we were a little before the time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it was a little bit ahead of the curve in that sense. Uh, but you know, there hasn't been really any gaming brand or gamer that that had as much of their own product out on the market, right? Mm-hmm. So we did something that even today, very few gamers have been able to replicate. Got it.
0: Do you have a favorite game that you got a chance to work on there? Or are they all kind of your favorite?
1: I I actually like Command and Conquer. That was kind of my favorite. Um, I I could play a little bit of of Quake, um, Mm -hmm. but first person shooter is not really my specialty. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really hard because I was hanging out with all the world's greatest first person shooter competitive gamers so mm-hmm. when you get on and start fumbling around with it, you just feel so so idiotic that I was like, okay, I'll I'll do something like command and conquerors, completely different skill set. I don't feel like I'm too embarrassing at that point.
0: Got it. Okay. No. Cool. Definitely. Uh. You know, teach their own on that point. But really interesting to hear about your time at at Avatati Gaming. Uh, some of the projects that you're currently up to include kind of you know working on uh, Rainmaker Web and also being the CEO of Screaming Box. Um, Rainmaker web actually a really insightful idea and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like a content creation agency where you work with people to help them create thoughtful, insightful content. So would love to know the kind of inspiration around that and how you're able to do that for people who candidly don't have the time or just plainly don't want to kind of write their own stuff.
1: Well, it's also not, it's a little bit of that. Um, I mean, I've had Rainmaker for 20 years. Uh, We've done a lot of different types of marketing. Uh, community marketing, uh, content marketing, distributing content over various communities. I have a, a partner in Washington, D.C. She has a master's in journalism. And we kind of were looking at where do we want to take it. And one of the things that I kept coming up with is I was meeting a lot of startups. And a lot of these startups, whether they're SaaS or product or anything, usually what their focus is, is they're just trying to get their, initial product or offering up and running mm-hmm. and by the time they're ready to go to market they have almost no content i've met a bunch of them where they didn't even have an about or their about was basically a paragraph that one of the founders wrote but doesn't mean a lot or bios it's hard to write your own bio and and mm-hmm. and, and then they need some kind of marketing that gets them some traffic but they have no budget right So if they're going to spend, you know, $500 a month, what are they going to spend it on? Uh, And and they need content. And probably the most important is they need content that shows how their product or technology can be applied to solve business problems, right? Mm -hmm. So they're looking for customers. And the first question customers have, whether it's a product or a SaaS or anything is, well, how can this solve one of my business problems? Mm -hmm. And most startups have a hard time making content. that that answers that question not because they can't but they're focused on a whole bunch of other things so we're now kind of in a position where we can offer that right we can do it at a fairly decent price we can get these startups a flow of content that starts getting them some organic traffic it helps them you know they're usually in a bubble three to five people trying to start this startup They need somebody to kind of talk to, to figure it out. So if I ask them, all right, tell me about yourself so we can write in about, you know, that can be a a 10 minute conversation, but what they really need is they need an hour to sit there and try to figure out, well, what do we want to say about ourselves and what is our story and how, you know, we have all these, this is how it kind of happened, but how do we say that in a way that, ties in with where we want to go and they they need someone to kind of talk with about that. So that's kind of the other side of the business is yes, we make content for startups, but we're also literally con, you know, having kind of a conference with them and brainstorming and experience transfer of, okay, how do we make your story easy to read and easy to understand and easy to you know, transfer to people who are potential clients or customers, and then how do you communicate what this can do for them, right? Mm. Because most startups are like, well, we got this SaaS and it does A, B, C, D. And that's great. You need to be able to say what the thing does. But most people are not coming to you to say, can you tell me your list of things that your software does? And then I have to figure out what do those things mean to my business? Mm -hmm. what they're really looking for is I got a business problem. Can you solve it? Right. And so you need to write the content of how does this thing that you offer solve this problem? And in this industry, how does it solve that problem? And here, how does it solve this? And if this is your situation, how does it solve that problem? So, you know, that that's really the content that's really important. And, a lot of startups are they're busy they don't have time to to produce that or even think about how to write it
0: you know it's a, it's a really interesting little niche of an industry going on right now cuz i think sometimes i see people who write online and i'm not going to say any names cuz i don't want anyone to have any issues with me but um sometimes i see these people with these massive and large followings and i'm like you know this like these seem a little like you know a little generic like i don't know i don't know if these people are actually writing everything so i think a lot of people underratedly use not saying that that you do that in particular, or that you're generic at all. Um, but just generally speaking, that uh, sometimes I see a lot of people or kind of a lot of uh, folks with these really large followings and a lot of what they put out online. I don't know. It doesn't not that it's generic might not be the best term, but it doesn't seem as personal or as personable. So in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah. oh, these people might be using a ghostwriting agencies. And uh, there's actually um one example that I oh, saw but, that uh, I'll mention.
1: They're, they're probably yeah. not using ghostwriting agencies. They're probably using AI. Right.
0: That, so that's, a, so that, that's kind okay. of the
1: issue, because people they use and there's a lot of you can go on YouTube, you can find a zillion YouTube videos, how to build an agency using AI and, mm-hmm. you know, and you can say, here's all the prompts you need to plug in. And if you use AI to write all of your content,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yes, it's going to seem shallow. It's going to seem disconnected. Sometimes it's not going to make any sense. Uh, And I can easily tell when I find someone that they're using AI to write all of their content. Mm -hmm. We use AI. It's the only way we can kind of offer the prices that we do. But the way we've used AI, and I've played with AI at every level, right? We mostly use AI to write uh, outlines, Mm -hmm. right? I talk to the client. I figure out what it is that they need. What are the, the issues they're trying to address? uh i i look at it from the potential client side what is the information i'm trying to get and then i work with ai to create an outline
0: mm-hmm. an
1: outline then saves us a bunch of time so if it takes me or my partner 4 hours to write uh, a 1500 word blog post right if i use ai to write an outline i can cut that down to 2 hours right mm-hmm. and in those 2 hours i'm able to write the stuff that has the voice the context that actually communicates the real meaning. I don't have to necessarily think about the article structure. I don't necessarily have to think about little things like titles and headings because that's put out in the outline, right? Or Mm -hmm. if I need some research, uh, we need to understand five things about this. The AI will get me the research so I don't have to physically go online to do that. I can read the research and then I can say, okay, how am I going to put all that research into one paragraph? And that's easier to do for me than to have the AI do it where it comes out as some mechanical paragraph. Since I know what the client wants and I know their client voice, I can write that paragraph, but I didn't have to do an hour of research. I was able to do an hour of research in 10 minutes. So again, it. it's a productivity tool. If you use it as a tool like that, it cuts down a lot of the work. But if I just said to AI, I write this article about this and I gave it a prompt, it wouldn't be very good right Mm -hmm. it It would satisfy the mechanics of seo which is the reason a lot of these guys who have followings are using ai because they're only doing it for that but if you actually read it and looked at it as communication it wouldn't make a lot of sense same with videos Mm -hmm. i can look at a video where a lot of the video is created by ai and i've used a lot of these video making tools where you take content and it turns it into a video. Uh, if you don't put the work into it, it it's garbage. Yep. Right?
0: I, I think maybe a good way to look at it and would love to hear your thoughts on this. AI and a lot of those tools will take you to the 10 yard line. will take you to first and goal, but it's on you to kind of score that touchdown and really bring it home.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't even say 10 yard line. I'd say like 30 yard line.
0: 30, right. 30 is also good. 30 is manageable. Right, you still got to do some more. There, there, there's yeah. some
1: real work there, and if you do it, like I said, AI can help you produce really good content much cheaper than if you just did it on your own. So mm-hmm. it has a, it's a productivity value. But if you get lazy, and if you try to get it to do all the work, uh, the results are not that good. Right? and you can see it i mean i like i said i can go on a youtube channel i can go on a website i can look at whatever comes up on my screen i pretty much can see now when it's been generated 100% ai mm-hmm. right I, yep. I i pretty much cuz i played with it a lot i played with all the ai writing tools i played with a lot of other tools canva is a very good example i've done it i i looked at it how do i create 100 youtube shorts in an hour. Well, the truth of the matter is, you can't do it in an hour because all those videos leave out certain little secrets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I got it down where I could do a hundred YouTube video shorts, faceless videos, uh, in my niche, uh, in about three hours, and they all kind of look good. But you know, the AI contributed an hour of that, and I had to do two hours of it, right, to make it look good. Whereas if mm-hmm. I did the AI a hundred percent, they all came out garbage.
0: Got right. It. I think it's a it's a great uh great workflow you described because a lot of people uh, are kind of I don't know if it's if it's as low key as it used to be but you know if you can make really viral YouTube shorts it seems like a way to to print cash these days um, so hopefully uh, they're successful for you but I agree in the sense that changing
1: AI- I mean we 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 put out about a hundred mm-hmm. and it had diminishing return right so the mm-hmm. first fifty. We got a benefit. It did what it was supposed to do. It got us some subscribers. It positioned our uh, longer videos, at more you know, watch rates, and all. It, it had a benefit. But then after 50, it started declining, Ooh. and by the hundredth, it almost had no effect. Right. Got right so all these things that you know they they get adjusted they play out people figure okay this is what they're doing and then youtube or whoever says okay we're going to adjust our algorithm because people are gaming the system this way or that way like i said nothing stays the same right
0: to able to adapt for sure uh, right the other cool thing that you're doing right now is you're the ceo of, uh, of screaming box which you so elegantly have right above you out uh, right there can you speak a little bit about your role there and kind of uh, the big thing that your company is able to the big value that your company is able to add to clients?
1: Well, um, you know, I I basically handle a lot of kind of the operational stuff. Um, And my main job is relationship, right? So uh, I go out and work with clients and find new clients and help them get their projects started. Uh, and my partner in Europe, he works with a lot of the developers. We have developers in Europe and in uh, South America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and these are people that are all senior level. We've worked with them for years. And, you know, the the project side, Screenbox is focused on the SMB side. We don't really do startups. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we would do a startup if they got funding. But, you oh, know we're not the cheapest agency. We're not the most expensive. We're kind of in the middle. Um, and our specialty is really businesses that they, you know, they say, I got a problem. Maybe I need to revise my website. Maybe I need a mobile app, maybe something. And then our real kind of added value is we go in and we have a conversation with them and we say, what are your business challenges? Okay. Well, yeah. A website redo is part of solving that challenge, but from what you've told me, we can automate these processes and that will help. And, oh, you got a customer service thing. Well, we can help integrate customer service this way, or if your customers are having trouble searching. We can build you a, a search engine that would really help them with what they're looking for. So there's kind of a consultative side on the front end, and then the, the client will usually say, great, you understand us, you understand what you want, you have some ideas, uh, you guys go build it, right? And that's usually how the projects start. And for us, we have two sides of business. One is a project side. The other is team extension. Uh, The team extension is more for larger companies who need kind of a a developer that they manage and want to take care of. But, you know, it's hard to find people and it's hard to find people that that can just come on and, and, and work. Uh, again, we have a, a really interesting developer pool and a way of processing uh, you know, behavioral analysis so that when the people go to work on a team extension job, we know they're going to fit and that they're just going to come in and, and start work. And, and uh, my enterprise clients love that. So they'll, they'll feed it. And, and again, we're not cheap, right? So mm. they, they use us when they really need us and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, and then the project stuff, uh, again, it really just depends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mobile apps, websites, backends, all that type of stuff we're, we're interested in.
0: Got it. So some front end kind of uh, consulting stuff and then some implementation once they know you guys who you're saying they are.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've had we've had jobs where somebody's come to me and said, here's my SOW, uh, get me an estimate. And we get them an estimate. And they say, great. Uh, we like uh, your developers and the questions you guys asked. And so here you go right mm-hmm. um if somebody comes to me and says hey here's an sow we got seven people bidding on it uh you know you can bid on it too i'm usually at that point like i'm not going to waste my time right. mm-hmm.
0: got um, it so for, for those that don't know um, an sow is a statement of work so it's something that consulting firms uh or it's something that clients kind of often offer to consulting firms to, uh, you know, show them the kind of work that has to be done. And uh, people often look at it as if it's like a black and white document when realistically once the engagement starts going, and Dave, you probably have firsthand experience with this, uh, the SOW starts to take all different kinds of shapes and forms and clients are yeah. prone to doing that. But uh, I think a lot of the times the best work that's done is the initial example that you bought up and this sense that, you know, a client will bring you an SOW, they'll be like, can you do this? He'll be like, Sure. Uh, when a client's really trying to book around town, I think at that point, they're just looking for, you know, the to do something, not that it's bad to be cost effective, but uh, you know, you should, if I think someone provides something that you provide something that's of significant value and it's something that you can probably afford, you know, don't waste, don't waste too much time shopping around. So uh definitely, right. I, I mean,
1: like I said, we're really, our developers are all senior level guys. Uh, we pay them well. Uh, and the reason we pay them well is we want really high quality work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if somebody's shopping around five or six development agencies. There's no way I'm going to be the lowest. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be the lowest. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, if somebody wants to have a deep conversation about their business or business challenge, what are the technologies that are available? How, you know, how would they approach this? That's what we can do. That's what we mm-hmm. can help with. Right. And a lot of the developers we have have a lot of experience in different types of businesses. Uh, And so they have a lot of experience in coming up with really interesting solutions. Got it.
0: I think that's an awesome uh, point there and definitely uh, wish you ongoing success. And I'm sure you guys would be a a great choice for people looking for kind of those kind of software services. Uh, On another note, Dave, what's your favorite book?
1: Well, like I said, I'm a science fiction fan. so. uh it's one of my you know one of the many science fiction books i've read i don't know if i have a favorite um you know but i have favorite authors right Mm -hmm. uh so david brin and isaac asimov and robert heinlein and uh arthur c Clarke. those 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 people uh are some of my favorite authors um
0: Awesome. Sounds good. I hope uh, I hope they can that come up with more books to to keep you entertained. Uh, yes. If you could give somebody... actually uh,
1: another one is uh David Gerald. Mm-hmm. Uh he wrote a book called When Harley Was One uh which was a book written in the late 70s um about AI and about where AI can go. Um, and David Gerald also wrote for a lot of uh computer magazines. Uh, He's a computer historian. Uh, And so uh, that book resonated with me from a very young age. Uh, I read it uh, probably 20 years after he wrote it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was really interesting. His take on where AI can go back in that time uh, was pretty accurate. Got it.
0: Interesting. I'll I'll have to check that out when Harley was one. Um, if you could give any advice to your younger self, say for example, your ten year old self or twenty year old self what would it be and why
1: Well, I'd have to be a man of a lot of regret regrets <laughs> to do that. I don't really have a lot of regrets i, I, I I've actually lived a, a pretty interesting and fun life, so um you know um enjoy I, the I guess ride, the, maybe? huh
0: I would say maybe you would tell tell your younger self to enjoy the ride.
1: Well, I, I kind of always have enjoyed the ride. Uh, I mean, there there were times when I kind of wasted time. There were periods of, you know, six months or a year where I kind of wasn't really doing anything, Uh, mm-hmm. wasn't really learning anything, wasn't really going forward in my life. Uh, I guess I would tell myself, just don't do that, right? Use your yeah. time wisely and, and mm-hmm. try to always grow and... Don't be too lazy and that type of stuff. But on the other hand, sometimes in your life, you just need that to be able to kind of clear your head. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's it's advice I would necessarily say, but, you know, don't waste too much time is probably the advice I would give.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. Um, if you could have one actor play you kind of in a movie made about your life, who would it be and why?
1: Um, well, that's a trick question. Um, I guess, uh, uh, Harrison Ford when he was in his, uh, 20s, mm. uh, would be perfect.
0: Got it. <laughs> awesome. I love that answer. Maybe you guys, he could play some Star Wars character named Dave. So that, yeah. would, be a, <laughs> that would be really interesting. Uh, what would you say brings you kind of the most happiness in life? Oh,
1: my family. So. Got it.
0: It's a beautiful answer. Most people say that or they're friends, but I think, um, Something I like to ask towards the end, because I think ultimately, you know, as people are a little more experienced, they realize that money comes and goes. But the people around you are really what makes stuff fulfilling. So definitely yeah. uh, a common, beautiful answer there.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, yesterday was a perfect day. Uh, I love mountain biking. And so me and my family, we went mountain biking. Mm-hmm. So uh, that to me is like a perfect day. Right. Yep.
0: On my end, uh, I'll get to the last thing I want to ask in a second. But for me, a perfect day is uh, is waking up, kind of going to the gym early uh, after the gym, just making a, a cold brew and then having this, having a, a bagel. And like, I don't know, um, you know, a lot of my friends who are probably listening. They'll probably like be chuckling right now or laughing because uh, what I usually make is like an everything bagel with egg, cheese, hash brown, and hot sauce. And like that with like, you know, a nice coffee on the side. To me, that's that's peak happiness. So it's each their own, but definitely uh, great to hear that. Um, On a final note, you know, you've done a lot of stuff. You've been a serial entrepreneur. Kind of you're clearly really, really wise. Um, Do you have any final is there any final word that you want to share, whether it's business advice, relationship advice, life advice, software development advice? Uh, The final word is yours, Dave.
1: Well, um, I guess my my advice is uh, stay focused on on what's important. Uh, don't get hung up on uh, little things that you can't really control mm-hmm. uh, and, and when it comes to whether it's software or any kind of venture that you're doing, uh really focus on understanding uh what the the customer wants mm-hmm. right what what is their need what is what is important to them uh, as well as what's important to the people that you're working with uh, and the people who are part of your business right Focus on the people. Uh, the product's important, the service is important, but in the end, uh, it's all about uh, people doing things uh, that make a business work well.
0: Got it. Thank you for the final word, Dave, and thanks so much for taking the time to go on the show.
1: All righty. Thank you very much, Daniel. It was great being here.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dave Erickson. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.